we need to talk about the rule of law. A podcast by Verfassungsblock and Deutscher Anwaltsverein. We need to talk about refugees and migration law. In discussions about these topics, refugees and migration policy are often being treated as the other of politics and policy. But the way states treat those seeking refuge and asylum on their territory is fundamentally a rule of law issue and actually says a lot about the current state of the rule of law there. Are refugees able to enter a jurisdiction and apply for their right to asylum? Are due process obligation being observed? Do refugees have access to justice? Does the European migration law system work? This is what we discuss in this week's episode of We Need to Talk About the Rule of Law with our distinguished guests. Arza Padavi is a lawyer and co-chair of the Hungarian Helsinki Committee, a non-governmental watchdog organization that protects human dignity and the rule of law. Philip Worthington is the Managing Director of European Lawyers in Lesbos, an NGO providing access to legal counseling in Lesbos. And Maria Karlin is a lawyer with expertise in migration law and member of the Migration Committee of the German Bar Association. She teaches at the University of Passau. I'm Leonard Kochat, a member of Verfassungsblock's editorial team, and I'm happy to have everyone on the show. Mr. Worthington, refugees entering the European Union often do so in Greece, on the Greek islands of Lesbos, where you are right now, or Samos in particular. Please give us a short account of the situation they face there. Good morning, and thank you very much for the invitation to take part in this episode. Um, so the, the situation facing asylum seekers uh, when they land on one of the, the Greek Aegean islands, um, uh, obviously there is initially the... the um, humanitarian aspect, the, the, the conditions and, and the legal process. Um, just briefly, um, the situation on Lesbos at the moment is that there are around 10,000 asylum seekers on the island uh, and the vast majority of them live in the new camp um, that was constructed following the fire that destroyed Moria camp in early September. Um, the conditions there at the moment, everybody is living in tents and with limited access to showers, toilets, electricity, um, and, and whilst there are some efforts underway to improve things, the reality is, is that um, thousands of asylum seekers will be living in these conditions over the winter. Um, in terms of the legal procedure, the first thing to say is that there's been a significant change over the past year, um, partly due to the coronavirus, of course, um, partly due to changes in relevant legislation that came into force on the 1st of January, um, of this year, and also political events in the first quarter of the year. Um, so just to briefly look at the situation um, coming up to this year, so from the EU-Turkey deal um, in March 2016 through to the end of 2019, uh, there remained large numbers of arrivals on the Greek islands, and, and the legal process was very slow. During this period, it could take up to a year between arrival and interview, and maybe another year before final decision. Whereas from the 1st of January 2020 onwards, the reverse has been true. So the number of arrivals have significantly decreased and the legal procedure has become much quicker. Indeed, now um, it's the other extreme, so the procedure is now too quick. 
This has particularly been the case um, since the fire that destroyed Moria in early September. Um, at that time, immediately following the fire, the interviews, all interviews were cancelled um, and the asylum procedure was suspended. But when it restarted in early October, the, the legal process has been very quick. So now asylum seekers are receiving their um, interview appointments at very short notice, sometimes even only the day before their interview. Um, and there are up to 60 interviews, sometimes more, done each day. Moreover, the interviews uh, appear to be very short, only an hour or an hour and a half sometimes. And this focus on speed um, undermines access to justice and the rule of law. And in particular, it means that often it's impossible for asylum seekers to speak to a lawyer before their interview. Um, and it's questionable whether such short interviews provide the opportunity for asylum seekers to fully and properly explain their case. Now, ultimately, the legal procedure, sorry, the asylum procedure is a legal process, but the Greek state doesn't provide any legal assistance or information at the initial stage of the process. Instead, the Greek legal aid scheme only kicks in at the appeal stage. And this is very important, as, as we all know, because without access to legal assistance and information right from the beginning of the process, many applicants are not aware of their rights and obligations, or even that they have to undergo a legal, uh, an asylum procedure. Now, on, on Lesvos and the other um, Aegean islands, all applicants must attend a, an asylum interview, and this is the most important part of the process. So again, no legal aid from the state is available at this stage, and, and what asylum seekers say on this occasion will determine their application and then follow them throughout the entire procedure. So if an applicant hasn't spoken to a lawyer, it's very easy for them to inadvertently make a mistake or to not disclose something relevant simply because they don't know the relevant criteria and what is important. Now, we believe um, that access to legal assistance is a fundamental right and particularly crucial in a situation such as that on the Greek islands as everything here fundamentally goes back to the legal process. The asylum seekers on the Aegean Islands are going through the legal procedure of applying for asylum, and therefore all the issues that we've seen over the past year, the overcrowding, lack of access to facilities and services, the living conditions ultimately relate to the legal procedure and its implementation. And one thing that really struck me um, coming here, I used to work in, in private practice in London, um, was that Whilst it's absolutely normal for people to have a lawyer for everyday legal procedures like buying a house or um, signing a contract, what struck me was that on the Aegean Islands, where the outcome of the legal procedure could in some cases be a matter of life or death for people, there were very few lawyers and most asylum seekers actually don't get the chance to speak to a lawyer before their interview. And just to summarise, what we have unfortunately seen over the past four and a half years is that the situation in terms of access to legal assistance has deteriorated. The current asylum framework is stricter than ever, and people are receiving their interview dates at very short notice. And this um, practice, as I mentioned, this focus on speed undermines the right to a fair process and access to justice, and therefore ultimately undermines the rule of law. And recent events, such as the fire that I mentioned, um, and the corona outbreaks on both um, Lesvos and Samos and, and elsewhere in, Greek, in Greece have further eroded legal access still further. So in this context, guaranteeing meaningful access to legal support is more important than ever, particularly as the need remains great. There are only 20 to 30 lawyers on Lesvos and over 10,000 asylum seekers going through the legal process, 
And on Samos, there's less than one lawyer for every 1,000 asylum seekers. So as I, as I mentioned, the need is very great and the capacity of the legal organizations to address that need um, is limited in comparison. Thank you very much. Um, the Odyssey refugees face in the European Union is far from over when they have left Greece. Hungary is known for treating refugees in a particularly horrifying way with the ECJ ruling that the infamous Roske camp is a detention facility where refugees are basically held imprisoned. Um, the government's anti-refugee and anti-migration rhetoric is, off, is frequent, frequently uh, followed by action. Could you tell us more about the situation in Hungary, Ms. Padavi? Thank you very much for inviting me um, on this podcast. Hungary is infamous for its uh, vile narrative and aggressive policies against um, refugees seeking and gaining protection in Europe. But very often the link between asylum and the rule of law is neglected or even avoided given how extremely politicized the topic of migration has become in the European Union. At the same time, from the ground in Hungary, we've seen how extremely interlinked these two crucial issues are and how, without addressing the rule of law aspects, there can be no progress in um, defending the right to seek asylum in Europe. Hungary has over the past five years completely dismantled its asylum system. And we have now said that it has actually removed itself from the common European asylum system. Over time, without giving you a lot of the details, we've seen how both the right to access to the territory and access to the asylum procedure have become the primary ways to restrict the ability to seek protection. Both of these access to the territory and access to the asylum procedure have been uh, restricted through a variety of legal and practical measures. That started in 2015 um, when Hungary has decided in the summer to uh, build a very uh, high securitized fence at its southern border with Serbia and Croatia and built up two border transit zones, closed container centers to provide accommodation and in fact detention to asylum seekers. In 2016, these measures were tightened and Hungary legalized pushbacks and effectively uh, restricted access to the asylum uh, procedure within these two transit zones at the Serbian border. And then um, these pushbacks, the pushback policy became a nationwide policy in early 2017 in the spring when anybody basically who wanted to seek asylum uh, within the territory of Hungary, with very few exceptions, would be removed forcibly, but in an, what we've considered an extrajudicial way to Serbia. And so these pushbacks um, meant that the access to asylum has really narrowed. But at the same time, those who don't have access to asylum in any way in Hungary um, has really widened. And so the, the gap between 
those who have access and those who don't has really widened. Now, after um, a number of very important judgments from the Court of Justice of the EU that um, showed that Hungary has built up basically a procedure that is in every aspect um, unlawful under European and international uh, law, um, in, in um, the spring of 2020, the Hungarian government has basically taken further measures to put Hungary completely outside the common European asylum system. Um, this de facto removal from the European norms has been um, enacted under the guise of COVID measures. And this is not the only, but maybe the most um, clear link to the rule of, rule of law issue. Uh, it's quite well known that the Hungarian government gained uh, the power to rule by decree in March 2020 as part of, of the emergency measures. And these, um, uh, this power also meant that the government basically suspended the right to seek asylum. From March 2020, not one person has been admitted to enter the transit zones. Before that, the number of of uh, admissions was gradually continuously reduced over time through basically practical non-official measures that uh, we deem arbitrary. But for March, no one has been out allowed to enter. Still, there were hundreds of people detained and it was in May 2020, in mid-May, that the Court of Justice finally uh, delivered its long-awaited judgment that ruled that the detention of people in the transit zone, asylum seekers, has, is arbitrary, lacks a legal basis in EU law. Um, this was an extremely important judgment as before that, um, the European Court of Human Rights came to a somewhat different conclusion. And uh, thousands of people have been detained for months or even years without um, proper reception conditions and proper access to justice in these two transit zones in Hungary. After the judgment uh, of 14 May uh, by the Court of Justice that pronounced that transit zone detention is actually unlawful, the Hungarian government decided to release everybody, all the 280 people who were detained in these two transit zones, into open Hungarian camps. But that was basically the only step taken to comply with the judgment. And since then, although more than half a year has passed, no legal changes have been even proposed by the Hungarian government to comply with the rest of the judgment. So it's important to point out that there is non-compliance with the court's judgment still ongoing. And this is very concerning. Beyond the release of those who were actually detained, the Hungarian government didn't do anything else to ensure that their rights would be respected. Instead, uh, with a government decree, which it had the power to adopt under this emergency legal framework, um, the government basically declared that um, the um, only way to seek asylum in Hungary from now on would be to apply at the embassy, in, that the Hungarian embassy 
in Belgrade or Kiev. And this has actually, this is why um, the, the whole notion of asylum within the territory of Hungary has been emptied out. Now, this uh, temporary decree is now law as after the emergency legal framework was over, the Hungarian government um, proposed and the parliament adopted a so-called transition bill, which further extended these embassy application measures, which are currently in place. And they have actually, um, by exclusively precluding asylum applications to be launched within the territory of Hungary and reducing this opportunity to be only available at two Hungarian consulates in the whole world, the Hungarian government has completely disregarded very basic um, notions of asylum in the European asylum system. There is no way to apply for asylum in Hungary, in fact, with very, very little exceptions. Even a student who has a valid visa in Hungary that would expire and would, upon return, face persecution in her home country cannot apply within Hungary. She would be, uh, she would have to go to Belgrade or be taken uh, across the border fence to be pushed back into Serbia and would have to apply with a so-called intent to seek asylum at the Hungarian embassy. There is no, of course, legal protection for people in this uh, situation within Serbia. Uh, the Hungarian government has not made any measures to ensure that there would be any basic standards of reception for people in this situation. And what we see, the very little practice that we've been able to see, this is this submission of an intention to seek asylum and the procedure that follows lacks any legal guarantees. Um, from the submission of this, this statement of intent, the Hungarian Asylum Authority will, has a 60-day has a window to take a decision on whether the person would be given, granted a single entry permit into Hungary and then apply for asylum. But as far as we know, this has not been granted yet um, to anybody. And so with this clear, um, uh, even most extreme measure, the European Commission had launched again a new infringement process on the 30th of October against Hungary. But this is not the first one. It's the fifth one on just asylum issues since 2015. And beyond these infringement measures that the Commission has taken, um, there's been, of course, a high number of preliminary reference requests made by Hungarian judges in mostly cases that are represented by Hungarian Helsinki Committee attorneys. These judgments and these ongoing infringement procedures show how important it is to, um, to trigger EU action to safeguard the right to seek asylum and also the right to independent judicial decision-making and also the right to effective remedies. And we do see very uh, important landmark judgments coming from the Court of Justice that um, result from Hungarian cases. One that I would mention here is um, from uh, 2018. It's called Torubarov, which concerned a Russian asylum seeker. And the court made it clear 
that um, under the charter, the right to uh, an effective remedy means that judicial decisions will eventually should eventually pronounce themselves on the merit of asylum claims. And uh, administrative authorities can't just play a ping pong um, and and, uh, forever drag on an asylum case. Um, And of course, the transit zone decision from May of this year was equally important. But it's important to see how these um, very important legal processes and actions by European institutions have not been, of course, able to to stop the Hungarian government from going ahead and being the basically the worst of the lot. Um, in this regard, the upcoming Migration and Asylum Pact and the discussions will be extremely important. I think we have to be very cognizant of the toxic uh, position that the Hungarian government has taken and how it, without strong resistance from those who protect and deem important rule of law, um, this position could spread to other member states or the whole EU itself. Uh, thank you very much. Um, Ms. Padami, you have called, um, what I've, which I find uh, quite remarkable um, or memorable, uh, the Hungarian government, the worst of the lot. Speaking of that, um, Ms. Kalin, Germany has been another of the countries at the center of the European dialogue on, on refugees and migration. How is the situation for refugees there at the moment and how has it evolved during the last couple of years and where would you position uh, Germany inside the lot, so to speak? So in 2015, we've been praised all over the world for welcoming thousands and millions of refugees into Germany because Ms. Merkel decided to say, okay, there is no way we can keep our borders closed if hundreds and hundreds of people are coming and reaching for asylum. So she... Some say she opened the borders, but the borders were open. She just said, okay, we will accept these people. We will check their asylum procedures. And this is what now is called the welcoming culture of Germany, what we had in 2015. Um, and so I think in these days we had a, a real welcoming atmosphere here in Germany. There were people welcoming people and at the railway stations with signs and hugs and warm blankets. But from then we've, yeah, we took a hard path, I I would say, because um, the numbers increased. So we had high numbers of recognitions in the asylum procedures in 2015-16 and also 17. First of all, because of the, a lot of Syrian migra- migrants coming and there were acceptance rates of over 96% from time to time. But since then, the yeah, the, the laws have not changed, but how the law is seen through the courts and also through the German asylum authorities has changed. So from high numbers of recognitions for asylum seekers, we went back, we dropped back from the refugee status to subsidiary protection and sometimes even rejecting people. Um, so now we are back on a recognition rate from, as I said, over 50% now to around 30%. Um, and also the public has change in the public view of migration. I think the public is still very divided. There are these people saying, yeah, we still need to welcome refugees here in Germany. We need to welcome them here. And the others, which go the way Hungary did and seeing Hungary as an example also for Germany, um, saying we cannot accept any more refugees. Um, It's too crowded. We cannot do this to our administration ever again because it's just too much work. It's just 
too much for the country. We cannot take any more. We cannot accept more people to come here because it's not possible to integrate them. So our system still is working because here in Germany, we have a very solid um, solidarity system. For example, we take um, care of people, paying them money if they cannot work. So this is a high cost also if we'd say, okay, we accept people here and take care of them. So we have a huge discussion right now, which way to go. And um, right now we're leaning more into this rejection way, I would say. So from the welcoming culture, we came to a politic now or a decision taking through the German um, asylum authorities saying, how can we prevent people from coming here and reaching asylum here? which is, for example, done through the um, Dublin procedure still in work. So we say we are not the first country of entrance in the European Union. So the numbers we're trying to send people back to Greece and Italy are increasing. And the second thing is we are very hard working on ways to send people back to their home countries. I would say before 2015 and in the year, in the short year time after, we didn't send a lot of people back to their countries of origin is except from the western european countries um like serbia for example um but we for example we never sent people back to ethiopia to nigeria but now we're really trying to find ways to send these people back and we haven't had that before and um, one focus for example in my field of work is afghanistan we haven't had people sent back to afghanistan but now we can send back people to afghanistan without any valid papers so they just need to go to need to be brought to the airports and flown back to afghanistan this was not possible before if they haven't had any papers so this is also a development i think is not the right legal way because the focus now is not on integration is on how can we get rid of people and how can we send them back the fastest way possible this is also a problem because, as you know, um, Germany is now the president has the presidency of the Council in the European Union, and what we've experienced here and how the law is changing here in Germany now is also, in a lot of ways, in a new pact on asylum because I can see the handwriting of the Ministry of Internal Affairs here in Germany, and they are sometimes copied into what is now in the new deal um, of my um, of asylum but we're going to talk about this later i suppose um so i think the situation has changed a lot we will see how it involves but i'm very skeptical that it's going to be in the favor of the asylum seekers um as far as my work as an asylum lawyer i have the same problem um we see on the greek islands that when I've started working or when we started working with this high number of refugees, we could talk to them before the hearing in the asylum procedure. And this was so important because we could we, we explained them what is important in your case, what do you need to present, where is the focus. And now we nearly don't have access to asylum seekers anymore before they have their interviews because they reach Germany, they are brought to um, closed camps where have, we nearly don't have access, so we don't know... Um, when are they reaching? Where are they from? Then they have their interview maybe after one or two days. And then they get the decision after 
a few days later. Yeah, so we have a lot of people coming to us, and they have a decision. They they just reached Germany a week ago, so they haven't had the time to come down to think through, to think about what is important in their case. And we just get these cases after they've been rejected already. So our only way to get protection for these people is through the courts. And so a lot of work which is which should have been done through the um, asylum authorities now ends up in court. So I sometimes have the situation that I have to do a new hearing with a judge in court who is not trained, who has no experience in the country um, where the person comes from, who has never heard of circumcision in Sierra Leone, but now has to take a decision on this case. So this is really hard and this makes my work as a lawyer really hard because I think it would be so important to talk to this, to people before they apply for asylum, before they have to hearing. And this is now nearly not possible because of the changes we had here in the German law system that people are taken into camps and really close camps sometimes so we don't reach them before they have the procedure and we are just the ones cleaning up after the mess in the asylum procedure. So we have also this focus on speed, which I can just say this is something I don't understand because we have this procedure. We were saying the procedure are taking too long if people had to wait for years and years. But now to do the whole asylum procedure within a few weeks is just not fair. And it's not, I don't, I think it's just not legal because you don't give the people, you don't give possibilities to reflect, to present your case in a good way. So this focus on speed is something we also have in the new pick on asylum and the new pick on migration in the European Union. And I think we need to take our time. It doesn't have to take years, but it should be worth to think about giving a few weeks, maybe a month or maybe two. So people can come here, feel safe, come down for a moment, think about the cases and then present the cases. Because I also have the experience if there are these rushed cases, people are not, they don't feel safe, they don't feel taken seriously, and they are not taken seriously because they just are um, numbers, but they're not humans anymore. So this is something we really need to talk about, and this really has to change. This focus on speed cannot be negatively for the people reaching for asylum, because as we said, it's a question of life and death in some cases. Thank you very much, um, Ms. Kardin. What really struck me in the way you described what happened in Germany in 2015 um, and the so-called uh, German welcoming culture that was cheered all around the world, maybe this welcoming culture was just about upholding the rule of law and not um, th there wasn't much more to it, uh, really. And I think it's really, um, it shows us uh, in, in what a, what a, um, varying position we are in if if this welcoming culture um, is is now seen as a problem um, and indeed one of the first thing refugees get in touch with in the European Union is the law as um, you have pointed out from the moment they enter the Union they are subject of a legal process examining their status this means that access to justice is fundamental for refugees but providing this access is now largely something non-governmental actors do, like European lawyers in Lesbos, uh, for example. And Mr. Worthington, I would like to ask you, why is it a problem if um, access to justice, access to legal counseling um, and providing that is left to non-governmental organization? Why would it be better if um, the states actively um, provide 
uh, refugees with legal assistance? Yeah, thank you. That's a that's a good question, and um, I, I think that there are there are two parts to it. I mean, first of all, why um, is is legal assistance right from the beginning important, and and why should this be provided by the states rather than um, non governmental organisations? I mean, I think um, as um, Ms. Carlin explained that the having access to legal assistance right from the beginning is is critically important, and I actually think it's it's critical for two reasons. I mean, first of all. And, and most obviously for the integrity of the procedure, for the um, ensuring that the correct decision is reached in the end, ensuring that people understand the procedure they're going through, understand their rights and their obligations, and so are in a position to articulate their um, their case in a way that actually reflects their need. I think it's um, almost impossible to overestimate the, um, the lack of information uh, 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 that people have when they arrive on the Greek islands, and of course that's no criticism of them at all. I mean, uh, I can't imagine how I would feel um, to suddenly arrive in Afghanistan and be told I was going through a legal procedure where everything was um, in Dari and I didn't understand a word of what was going on. I just arrived and I was told that my interview was in a couple of days. I mean, to expect people to be able to um, be in a position to articulate their case in that situation um, is, I think, frankly unreasonable, given that in that scenario, people's first and overriding concern is, of course, where am I sleeping tonight? Where's, you know, where do I get food to eat? Where are the toilets? Um, is this place safe? Rather than being in a position to comfortably articulate their um, their case. So, I think exactly as as Ms. Carlin said, the importance of giving some time to allow people to to settle, to to speak to a lawyer critically, uh, and to be in a position to to um, articulate their cases is critical and of course the rule and um, the role of the lawyer in this is is absolutely fundamental because um, the asylum procedure like any legal procedure is complicated and has you know, applicable criteria that people need to meet and often they may not be what um, people who are, who are approach this um, who arrive without understanding the asylum procedure it may not be what they initially think I mean we have seen many many cases of people um, who have arrived here on Lesvos and um, they they consider that it's an administrative process. They're unaware that there are certain criteria that need to be met because this has never been um, explained. Um, many people think that the best thing to do in their interview is to talk about the um, the the economic benefit that they will bring to the country. Uh, you know, often aware that Greece. Um, over the last few years has, has suffered some economic hardships that many people think that the most important thing to demonstrate in their asylum interview is that they are um, you know upstanding members of the community who contribute effectively to um to the economy which of course from an asylum perspective is the worst thing that that somebody could say um and but is, is a logical thing for somebody to say if they don't know anything about the procedure uh, and often people won't um, articulate their experiences either because they don't feel comfortable to do so and you know often uh, it's very the events very traumatic and difficult to talk about but also often because they think that actually Greece the European Union won't want to um, won't want to admit somebody who won't want to give protection to somebody who who may be vulnerable who may have gone through traumatic events um, and so I think that even that small amount of um, assistance that can be provided is is very valuable um, I think the, the, the other point about the um, importance of legal um, assistance actually goes to the 
from the perspective of the state. Um, I think there is a, an expectation, uh, a narrative that uh, legal assistance is only for the benefit of the asylum seeker. And of course, it is absolutely for, for the benefit of the asylum seeker to speak to a lawyer. But it's also, and I'm convinced of this after having spent four and a half years on Lesvos, it's also in the benefit of the state that people, that asylum seekers get to speak to a lawyer. This is because an asylum seeker who has spoken to a lawyer, who's been prepared, who has their case ready, who has all the evidence and is, you know, is, is prepared for the interview, um, will go to the interview and, and will articulate their case. And it makes the decision-making process from the state's perspective, both easier and quicker. Um, and that applies for asylum, it applies equally for family reunification too. And I think in the long term, overall, it actually um, makes the process quicker to, to give people a bit more time to speak to a lawyer rather than rushing people through the process. And that's because whilst, you know, as, as Ms. Cowan mentioned, it may mean um, that people get a decision within a week of arriving, um, in many cases, I imagine that those decisions will be challenged, that there'll be appeal uh, appeals, many will be overturned. And actually that makes the process longer rather than simply giving people a bit more time to speak to a lawyer at the beginning and having critically a framework in place for people to speak to a lawyer to avoid people being rejected incorrectly and unnecessarily and then having to go through the whole appeal process and the added um, administrative burden of that. And I think that that leads on to the... Um, one of the fundamental reasons as to why um, we consider that this should be the role of the state rather than the role of um, NGOs, uh, because ultimately um, this is a rule of law issue. Um, we believe access to legal assistance is a fundamental right and that um, everybody who applies, who arrives and applies for asylum should be provided a lawyer, free legal aid, right from the beginning by the state in order to help people through the process, um, as I mentioned, for the state's benefit, but also fundamentally to ensure that the um, it's for the asylum seekers' benefit, that the procedure is fair, robust, efficient, and that ultimately um, the, the rule of law is upheld and, and human rights are protected through meaningful access to legal assistance and meaningful access to justice. Thank you. And, and obviously, in, in lieu of um, meaningful legal assistance from governments, it's, it's absolutely um, fundamental that there are non-governmental organizations like yours that um, take their place in some way. Um, Ms. Carlin, uh, your take on that? I just wanted to add because we have a funny discussion right now in Germany because um, the German Asylum Authority now is um, the, yeah installing an, an, a way of giving first consultation to the migration uh, to the um, asylum seekers so they do this kind of state consultation you're asking so i totally agree on what you've said there should be legal assistance but what they're doing now in germany is they give general information on how the procedure works which is fundamental but it's not the way i think asylum seekers need legal advice and what is happening right now the ngos giving the legal assistance right now in the camps, they are expulsed sometimes or they're, cu uh, sh they're cutting down their money because they're saying now there is this assistance through the state, through the German um, asylum authorities. So this is also something which is not working. So we need to 
make sure that there is an independent legal assistance focused on the individual cases. So I'm just saying, just giving um, the state um, the obligation or giving the state the responsibility for consultation is not the way we want this legal assistance to be happening. So this is just to add on how it's working in Germany, because we have this discussion right now that the state is saying, okay, we're going to prevent this kind of assistance, but it's not the assistance we need for the asylum seekers. Thank you very much, um, Mr. Rothington. Yeah, just just to quickly add, I mean, absolutely, 100% agree, of course, that the, the critical element in this is, is, I suppose, the words meaningful and independent, um, that um, having having a mechanism where people actually can't meaningfully access um, legal assistance, and if that legal assistance isn't absolutely independent, then um, that's you know worse than um, than no legal assistance by the state at all. So yeah, I completely agree. Ms. Padavi, under the Hungarian system, there is state-funded legal aid available to asylum seekers, but in fact, it is um, in no way um, meaningful. Uh, one very important aspect of any legal aid system is that it should be accessible and effective. And that part of that is that clients should be able to trust um, and communicate with the state legal aid personnel in the Hungarian system. Um, before the transit zones were abolished, uh, the, there was a few state-funded attorneys who would provide legal assistance to asylum seekers. And of course, the Hungarian Helsinki Committee has attorneys who are um, contracted on a very long-term basis through our uh, UNHCR-funded legal assistance and advocacy project. But um, asylum seekers always in the past few years had the chance to consult legal aid attorneys. And at the same time, we sadly saw that the effects of these consultations or even representation was made not not much of a difference to the asylum seekers case. This is a highly, asylum is a highly uh, technical legal field. This is why it's so important for asylum seekers to have lawyers who will explain the process. And particularly in a situation of unlawful detention Um, very quick um, procedural deadlines, notions such as the the Hungarian invention of the safe uh, transit country, which is also, of course, has been shown that um, by the courts of justice to be unlawful in the way it was applied. But these intricate legal uh, procedures and notions require legal expertise in this particular field. And um, there was no criterion uh, for state-funded legal aid lawyers to be in any way uh, familiar with with this uh, legal field, nor was there any effort made by the state itself to ensure that clients or potential clients would have confidence in these legal aid lawyers. At the same time, what we saw was that um, the legal um, work performed by quite well-trained asylum lawyers that the Hungarian Helsinki Committee has been working with for many years was effective. And people really appreciate the fact that there are lawyers working with interpreters, and this is also extremely important, who will help them. And so we have seen um, over the years that cases represented by Helsinki Committee attorneys were quite successful 
the asylum authorities quick and and I must say, a very often very shallow decisions were overturned by courts. And the mere fact of an effective legal assistance annoyed the Hungarian state. And so over time, there were a number of measures taken to make it even more difficult for, for asylum seekers to meet with people who would, be, um, who would, who would know this legal field. Uh, this was uh, the first step was in 2017 in the summer when the cooperation agreements that the Helsinki Committee had with, um, with the Immigration Office and other law enforcement agencies that allowed access for legal assistance purposes to detention centers, these cooperation agreements were terminated. This, of course, came amidst a, a huge um, campaign, harassment campaign against civil society organizations working in the field of human rights in Hungary. And then in 2018, a year after, the so-called Stop Soros legislation package also criminalized um, the assistance to people for the purpose of them filing an asylum application the legislation probably deliberately was extremely vague and for a very long time it was unclear whether lawyers would be able to continue to provide legal assistance, something that even the Hungarian Bar Association pointed out is completely um, uh, with disregard to the basic right to have access to an attorney of one's choice. Of course, um, then um, there was another infringement process launched by the European Commission um, on account of, of, of this criminalization of, of, um, of humanitarian and, and legal assistance in Hungary. Uh, but at the same time, this was very clear that there was a campaign against people and organizations who are willing to put you know, professional efforts uh, to assist people with their right to understand the legal process. And I think we really have to be very um, wary of the narratives here too, where lawyers are singled out in media or even judges are singled out um, in, in what has happened already in Hungarian pro-government media for um, turning to the courts of justice, uh, to asking it to clarify um, EU law. So the restrictions on access and effective access to to legal assistance are part of a campaign i think to really restrict the right to seek asylum and we have to be very um, much aware of the need to work with other lawyers too not beyond the asylum um, field to ensure that they also stand up for the right of people to have legal representation no matter what field this concerns thank you very much um the European Commission has proposed a migration package to address multiple issues of the current European migration system. Ms. Padawi, what are the EU's plans and how do you evaluate them? Will they be able to bring Hungary back into the EU migration system that it removed itself from? Human rights and refugee rights advocates have been um, waiting for the EU Migration and Asylum Pact with quite a lot of concern. Uh, at the same time, for somebody from Hungary, like myself and my organization, this is uh, a real dilemma. 
Hungary has been through the past years has really put itself out of bounds beyond anything that is currently permissible under the common European asylum system. And therefore, uh, looking at the, at the pact itself, we see that from a Hungarian perspective, some things would need to improve if the pact's rules were adopted. The, these very same rules might seem extremely alarming to many um, refugee rights advocates around Europe. But when it comes to, to you know, reinforcing the basic notions of detention, which must be ordered by law for a definite period of time, having seen how there was automatic detention indefinitely in the Hungarian context, we have to welcome the fact that in, in many points, this would be you know, made very clear by EU law that detention must have legal grounds and there are, there are limits to it. Uh, at the same time, looking at the question of, of, of access and how access has been unlawfully and arbitrarily limited, eroded in Hungary, um, we're also um, you know, a bit positive about the fact that there is um, spelling out that asylum seekers still have access to, to protection um, in Europe. However, of course, the details, the devil is in the details, and these details provide a pretty narrow uh, opportunity and rights to asylum seekers. But I must say that it's difficult to look at this pact as inherently um, and overall negative from a Hungarian perspective, uh, because hung the, the current practice and the current legal framework in Hungary is beyond what even the new rules proposed by this pact would allow. Thank you. Um, Mr. Worthington, you have told us that procedures are getting ever more, ever more swift uh, on the Greek islands. And I think that the new proposals by the Commission are designed to make asylum procedures um, and everything that's connected to it um, more swift. Uh, so what's your take on the recent proposals? Yeah, thank you. Exactly. That, that was exactly our, um, our analysis of the situation, that almost the situation on the Greek islands is what the pact will look like when it's in force. Um, this emphasis on, on really, uh, really quick procedures, it's almost like this is a preview of what um, the aim of the pact um, is going to be. And um, I think there are two primary concerns for us. I mean, um, obviously, un until the, the, the legislation goes through, it's difficult to see all the, the elements. But I think the two main concerns are exactly as you say. Number one, the speed of the procedure. Um, the, the, the pact seems to emphasize having a, a very quick procedure. And as we've seen and as we've discussed, um, that has many major concerns um, from the rule of law and access to justice perspective. Similarly, the pre-screening regulation, um, which um, again goes to this issue of, of speed. And um, the, it's something that struck me that Having 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 worked on Lesbos, where there are there are um, people from many many different nationalities going through the procedure, um, I think that often people think, oh well, you know, it's it's 
Syrians and people from Yemen who who need access to legal assistance and will you know, will need support through the um, procedure. And and whilst that is absolutely true, um, and everybody should have meaningful access to lawyers, it's often um, people from countries of lower recognition, uh, average recognition rate, um, that actually where the, the the impact of meaningful access to legal assistance is so profoundly clear. Um, for example. Um, uh, a member of the LGBTQI community from Cameroon, um, and Cameroon is a much lower recognition rate country than, than somewhere like Syria or Yemen, obviously. Um, but a, a member of that community coming from Cameroon, um, in many cases, really does face um, significant um, persecution and is at serious risk. But looked simply at, uh, from a perspective of average recognition rate, Cameroon is a, is a lower recognition rate country. And so that suggests that therefore they would go through a, a or potentially go through a fast track procedure with even um, less opportunity to speak to a lawyer. Whereas actually it's in cases like that um, where having the proper opportunity to speak to a lawyer, to have um, you know, uh, the opportunity to speak to a lawyer and have numerous um, consultations, really go through the case, prepare the um, prepare the case, prepare the applicant, gather the evidence, is where we see that a, a, a critical difference can be made in certain circumstances. So in some senses, from, a, from an access to justice and a rule of law perspective, this pre-screening regulation is almost upside down because it, it, it has the effect of further denying uh, access to legal assistance from people from low recognition rate countries. And often it may be people from those countries who actually could really, really benefit from that um, opportunity to speak to a lawyer. So after everything that we've talked about, is there such a thing as the rule of migration law in the European Union? That's something I would like to ask the three of you. Um, Ms. Carlin, would you like to start? So from my point of view, I don't see really a big change. I just see things getting worse, which is very funny because from the Hungarian point of view, it's getting better from the German point of view. We would say it's getting worse. And we were hoping for bigger changes in favor for the migrants. And right now it's just, as we've heard, speeding up the procedure. It's not guaranteeing an efficient way of legal protection and support. Um, and we were really hoping, for example, to get a new way of fair share, which is not happening because still we have the main responsibilities in the countries um, at the European border. So this is not changing through the new pact. So I don't see that there is a change, but I think right now is also not the time because as we have seen, there is not the will of the European countries to work together to find a fair and, yeah, I would say constitutional way of um, finding an European asylum system. So there are so many countries rejecting, for example, to accept um, a fair number of refugees. Other countries would accept refugees, but say, um, if the other countries don't work and don't cooperate, why should we take on more refugees? So there is just not a solution right now. So we will have to wait what the future brings. And I'm just hoping that we will stick to the fundamental human rights and we will find our ways. And if it's necessary, through the courts, because this is the only way we have as lawyers. And this is what we're all working on. Thank you. Um, Ms. Padavi. 
I agree with uh, Ms. Carlin absolutely that the courts are essential in uh, upholding uh, safeguards. And I think a lot of, of, uh, of our energies and commitments should be concentrating on this. Uh, sadly, I have to agree that those who are the most vulnerable and those who need uh, the most help, those who, who uh, well-functioning legal aid systems should be um, really prioritizing are probably going to be again in the weakest position. And so um, a, a general strengthening of standards for everybody is probably not going to be enough. And many, um, a lot of attention and legal work should be concentrated on uh, helping to reinforce the, the rights, the, the effective rights of the most vulnerable in this. I find it uh, extremely concerning that the Hungarian government under its latest rules um, on, on this um, embassy system would uh, allow even the detention of unaccompanied minors under the age of 14. There is no special provision even for children. And this kind of of um, of of actions and and policies, we really have to push back against. At the same time, I think that there is a lot of faith to put in in the legal profession, uh, attorneys and judges, and we have seen in the extremely difficult polarized, politicized Hungarian context, how judges themselves who have not worked on asylum issues for a very long time have recognized the, uh, that um, extrajudicial arbitrary measures are not permissible, neither under Hungarian nor European Union law. And they found this field uh, to be not only intellectually stimulating, but something that is a core rule of law issue. Many of them have recognize this and see that there are still um, there are still safeguards and opportunities afforded by EU law and these are being developed at the course of justice now so I think all eyes should be on Luxembourg and we have to use the case law we have to use the charter to reinforce these rights and this is quite instrumental and this is a very strong link to the rule of law debate Thank you. And Mr. Worthington. So the question, is there the rule of law in relation to asylum law in Europe? Well, um, I think that yes, but it's it's a fragile flame and it needs protecting in this current situation. Um, what, what really strikes me is that um, it seems to have now become accepted across Europe that there'll be, um, for example, tens of thousands of people, um, tens of thousands of asylum seekers living in refugee camps on the Greek islands. And this is something that five years ago would have been absolutely unthinkable. Um, but now the situation has become normalized. Um, and I think that looking at this from a Greek perspective, um, maybe something that has a theme that has gone through all of this discussion is that um, this is not just a Greek issue. It's a European issue and needs a European response. Um, but this to have a European response needs the will and the agreement of the EU member states to work together and to share responsibility. And I suppose right now this looks quite difficult and so um, needs the, the active work of organisations, of lawyers, of judges, politicians and citizens 
across the EU to actually ensure that this, um, this flame of the rule of law when it comes to asylum law is protected in these difficult times. Well, thank you very much, Maria Kalin, Phil Worthington and Marta Padavi for joining us for this episode on refugees and migration law and their relation to the rule of law in the European Union. And thanks to all of you for listening. We appreciate your feedback with the hashtag LawRules and on Verfassungsblock and hope that you will listen to us again next week for our 10th episode on the European Charter on Human Rights, the European Court of Human Rights and the Venice Commission of the Council of Europe. This was We Need to Talk About the Rule of Law. See you next Wednesday. Mm -hmm.